Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today is one of the most accomplished cave divers in the entire world. Jill Heinerth is an underwater explorer, writer, photographer, and filmmaker. She's done television shows for National Geographic, the BBC, and PBS. More people have walked on the moon than explored some of the places Jill's been underwater. She was the first person to dive Antarctica's ice caves, and it was also part of the team that made the first 3D map of an underwater cave. She's escaped from exploding icebergs, survived mudslides, and been inducted into the International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Into the Planet, One Woman's Journey to Find Herself. Here's her story. I thought, Jill, that, and you bring this up in the book, it, it might be a fitting way to start. If you could tell your story of your first memory of water. Well, uh, my first memory of anything <laughs> is actually associated with the water. I was uh, apparently uh, up at the family cottage and we, my mom and I were out on a dock. Uh, my sister and brother were playing nearby. And I guess my mom turned her attention for a moment. And the next thing she knew, she saw me, the toddler, <laughs> floating face down in the water. And it was terrifying to her. Uh, I actually remember what it looked like. I remember looking at the ripples in the sand and the sun sort of beaming through this clear, cool water, kind of making rainbows on the, uh, the, the bottom. And... I was mesmerized by that. But the next thing I remember seeing is my mother's sneakers landing right in front of my <laughs> face and uh, white shoelaces kind of wafting in the water. And she snatched me up screaming. And uh, apparently I was laughing. <laughs> I just remember the visual of what it looked like underwater and her shoes and being hugged and and that's about all I remember from that near drowning experience it just scared my mom but for me maybe it was just that invitation to go back <laughs> what you know I'm, I'm presuming that fondness for water stuck obviously uh especially mm -hmm. as as uh the years went on as you're a kid what what was it that attracted you to water you know it's funny because I, I grew up in Canada so it's not like the water was warm and inviting <laughs> <laughs> But it was a place for me to explore. I mean, I was a kid growing up watching Jacques Cousteau on TV and I just wanted to explore like him. I, I mean, I remember my brother would sit on the beach and build dams and waterways like to, to root the water and he would dig deep to find the water table. But you know me, I was face down with a snorkel and a mask looking for living things and turning over rocks. And uh, I just wanted to be in the water. And, and apparently like I'd be there all day long until my lips were blue. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get along as a kid? Like, What were you like in those days? Oh, uh, I was definitely the outdoor explorer. Um, you know, my mom says I, I was never, I was never any trouble. I didn't complain. I was never bored. I always found things to do, new things to learn. But, but yeah, I was always out either in the water or exploring in the woods. Um, it was pretty hard to keep me contained indoors. So uh, Mississauga kid, is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, what yeah. were the, what were the swimming holes that you were going to, if you were getting out to, outside? Yeah. 
well, I mean, not too far from Lake Ontario. So we were often down at the beach and uh, we had a family canoe. So every weekend was either hiking on the Bruce Trail or, or canoeing in the Credit River or anywhere, really. Uh, we'd pile all five of the family into a, a canoe. Um, and there was also this little farm behind my school that had a small pond. And my friend and I used to sneak back there like before going home after school and go for a swim. How did you feel in the water? If you're, if you're you know, looking at the life forms or if you're just... The, the feeling of swimming, of floating, of being in the water? Well, I still think the water is my true element. I'm not the most graceful creature on land. <laughs> you know, we joke in my family that I've, I've rolled the van, I've crashed my bicycle, I've crashed a motorcycle. <laughs> um, so maybe the water is the best place for me, despite the dangers of, of what I do. But I kind of think of water, especially diving, as this sort of equalizer for all of humanity it doesn't matter you know what your gender is what your cultural background is what you know anything about your size or your body we can all float like freely underwater and have that sensation of flying yeah closest we get to flight really our human flight of being underwater you gave mm. a TED Talk in 2015 at the Brooklyn Museum. You were speaking to mm. teens from New York City. And, and one thing that you said really stuck with me. You told them that our world is not a big solid rock, but more like a sponge. Could you expand on that a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, wherever you live on this planet, um, you know, the ocean begins beneath your feet because whatever we do on the surface of the land soaks into the ground, moves in between grains of sand and soil. Um, And some of that ends up in cave spaces, underground tunnels that I can swim through. So when I'm in an underwater cave system, I am literally swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. And everything that has ever happened on the surface of the land may have soaked down into that groundwater and and I see it and it leads from higher elevations down to lower and eventually out to the ocean and you know I kind of look at this year that we've just had the COVID year where nobody really had a full expectation or understanding of how we are all interconnected but Today, nobody can deny it. I mean, a small particle of a virus on the other side of the planet has infused all of us with with a situation where we're all dealing with, with COVID or the fear of COVID. Well, that's no different than water on our planet. You know, I might be inhaling a breath that Shakespeare exhaled in his lifetime or dealing with the pollution on a shoreline that came from some other part of the planet. So water connects us all. And uh, it's undeniable when you when you swim through it. Mm. So there's water and then there's caves. And, you know, many of us like to spend time in water. Not as many of us like to spend time in caves, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've described caves in this book as being, I mean, one of underwater caves being sort of like the last frontiers on Earth, the place less familiar to us than our own galaxy. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, you know, we've spent more money on space exploration than on understanding the oceans of our planet and especially uh, caves and, and, and underwater caves. I, there's still such a small 
core of individual researchers, explorers, and enthusiasts that have even gone into these places. I, I mean, the places that I have explored, you know, fewer people have been to than have been to the surface of the moon. There are many places that I've been and documented that nobody else has ever been to or will ever get to. And it behooves us to understand the circulatory system of our planet and how it transports you know, water from one place to another. Because I really think that, that understanding these pathways of water is truly one of the most important research initiatives of our generation. This, this might spark a long story. I'll allow you to, to decide how long you want to make it. But what compels a person or what compels you to go into the caves? When did that start to think, I want to go down in there? Well, uh, you know, I was that little kid that grew up building forts inside a cupboard, maybe in the top shelf of a closet, <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, would crawl into like a crotch of a tree that had a entryway or squeeze in between rocks in a crevasse on a hiking trail. Uh, I always had this curiosity, what's in there? <laughs> you know? And, you know, I also wanted to be an astronaut as a little girl, but Growing up in Canada, we didn't have a Canadian space program at the time or women astronauts to look up to. And maybe this was the frontier that I saw in my own backyard and the opportunity that I saw to explore. I don't have an ounce of claustrophobia, uh, but please, you know, everybody that does, you know, everybody that's scared by the, the whole concept of going into a cave or an underwater cave, um, like it's normal <laughs> to be afraid. <laughs> it's normal to feel claustrophobic from those situations. But but that's not me. I'm, I'm more comfortable underwater in a cave than I actually am in a dry cave. So clearly there's something about that water element that uh, that attracts me. I, I want to go to a, a point in time. You're 27 years old, you're in the working world, but it's not really jiving with you. And you describe a feeling like you were wearing clothes that didn't fit. Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that time and place and that crossroads and how you went forward from there? You know, as a young person, you're in high school and people start saying to you, you have to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. Holy mackerel, that's a lot to put on a shoulder of a teenager. And... I, I was very successful in school. I could have done whatever I wanted, but boy, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved everything, you know, <laughs> science, environmental science. I was an artist, uh, a musician. You know, what should I take? What narrow focus was I going to be shoehorned into? And I ended up um, pursuing a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Communications Design. And that really satisfied my creative brain and every project presented me with new challenges, new things to learn. Uh, but after university, I started into the world of advertising and graphic design. And as much as the creative process was, was really motivating to me and I was doing well, I quickly learned that I wasn't very good at being tied down and staying indoors all day long. I was always thinking of the fastest way out of the office to go teach a scuba class or go dive for the weekend, my hobby. And I literally sat down and thought, well, how can I combine these things? You know, how, how can I satisfy the creative genes that, that are important to me? How can I embrace science and make a contribution to the world, but how can I do this outside? And the only way I knew was to sell everything <laughs> and, you know, try to create a career that didn't even exist. 
<laughs> so there were no precedents to look to at the time? No, not really. I mean, quite frankly, when I started pursuing that course in making diving my full-time career, I I looked to the traditional pathways. Like I, I took a clinic uh, in um, commercial diving. I thought maybe commercial diving would be a great pathway. And then an instructor pulled me aside and said, there's no room for women in commercial diving. And if you just want to go train some dolphins or something, there are other ways to do this. And, it, you know, incredibly offensive. Mm -hmm. That slammed a door in my face as a young woman without enough confidence to say, hey, this is crazy, you know. Um, so I looked at that pathway. I thought, okay, well, I guess there isn't. So I was already a scuba instructor, and I thought, well, this is the best way forward. Uh, at least I can teach diving and figure out how to do this whole, you know, underwater media, you know, sell stories, sell my pictures. Those are things I can do. So maybe that's a first foot in the door. But I, I quickly learned I was going to need to develop other skills to make this a full-time career um, if I wanted to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. So, so that first step, you leave Canada and uh, you go to a dive resort and start mm -hmm. working there. Um, yeah. How did that go? Great, really. Uh, you know, it gave me the opportunity to be in the water, you know, many times a day and, and become a better diver, become a better underwater photographer, because I was really self-taught in that whole uh, that whole thing. Like, you don't learn to be an underwater photographer at university. I mean, I only had one credit course in photography in my entire fine arts degree. So um, it gave me the time to figure things out. And it gave me the time to start volunteering for things that would enable me to meet the right people that might help me kick other doors open. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are the principles to underwater photography? How do you control the factors that are going to lead to a good picture? I quickly learned that everything I knew about photography uh, was different <laughs> <laughs> underwater. And, and so I started underwater photography in the film days when you had a roll of 24 or 36 in your in your camera so you had to know what you were doing but then you know living in the cayman islands you had to first get that roll of film to town which was actually no easy task from where i was living and then wait and then have another opportunity to go pick up the developed uh materials <laughs> so it's a slow process and you know a lot of you know note taking here's what i did the results were poor here's what i did the results were great and um it, it's definitely a process well then later for me applying that to underwater caves a completely lightless environment was even more challenging you know i had to figure out the technology and the strobes how to get a whole bunch of strobes to fire um, and uh, light up a, a dark place and tell a story that I wanted to about that. So yeah, I think I think my whole career has really been about pushing new technologies, whether it's cameras and strobes or survey technology or life support, whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm going to skip ahead in time a little bit uh, to one of your early expeditions. Uh, you're in Mexico trying to map out this cave that would be the deepest in the world if if all of the links could be connected. You know, you're in the northern part of Oaxaca, there's venomous snakes, there's mudslides. Um, this being an early expedition for you, you know, one of the, maybe your first really true expedition. What did that teach you um, about what expeditions oh. could be like? 
Yeah, that was so formative and so important in my life. It wasn't an expedition I had even, you know, initially planned to be a part of um, until until I was invited to join the U.S. Deep Caving Team. And, and Dr. Bill Stone taught me so much about leadership. So as the expedition leader, he um, ended up supporting me in some very groundbreaking, difficult dives. And I thought, wow. You know, here's the guy that I would have expected wanted to be at the end of the line cave diving in this incredible place. And uh, yet there he was willing to carry gear for me, get it to the cave, support me and uh, this neophyte <laughs> uh, to, to, to contribute to this expedition. But it also taught me about teamwork because we, we experienced mudslides, horrific visibility and great challenges in doing traditional survey work in this cave. And around a campfire at the end of the project, we all started brainstorming about what was next. And Bill Stone had this great vision that could only be realized with the help of a very multidisciplinary team of, of volunteers. And I gained so much respect from him in that project that I jumped in with both feet. And I'm like, put me to work. <laughs> I, uh, I want to continue to support your your ideas inventions and projects and uh i'm in so much in an expedition like that i mean there's the famous saying like there's plans and then there's what happens to plans <laughs> um how do you account for all of the potential things that could go wrong in an expedition to give yourself the best chances of things going off without a hitch to make sure that you know what are, what are all the safety checks you go through with a dive, with with expedition planning to uh, to get the results you're after. Well, as much as you can plan and research before an expedition, that's all really, really important. I mean, you need to do the research and and develop as many you know decent expectations as as possible in order to arrive there with the right gear, the right training, and the right people. But once you're there, you need a very flexible team that's willing to revisit everything day by day and work towards a consensus on how to tackle new problems and new risks that you couldn't possibly have anticipated. I mean, there's no handbook when you're the first person to do something. So um, once you get there, um, there's so much that's different than you ever anticipated. And you have to kind of go back and go, Ooh, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Like, how are we going to trade roles so that the best person is doing this particular task. Uh, and so there's there's that teamwork aspect of that risk assessment, but then there's also that personal aspect as well, like pre-visualizing immediately before you go underwater, what could possibly kill me today? And uh, asking yourself if you have the tools, the training and the ability to deal with that on a given day. There's a moment in that expedition, basically you have maybe a matter of seconds to decide whether to get into the water as the water is starting to come rushing back into this cave. Could you just talk about uh, maybe that moment, what was happening at the time and, and the sort of calculations you had to make to, to, uh, yeah. to go forward? Yeah, we were experiencing a lot of these sort of periodic floods into the cave system that would obliterate the visibility and change the current and everything else. And um, we'd actually sort of dammed part of the river in order to give us the best, clearest water possible. But still, every once in a while, these, these floods would come rushing through and change everything for us. And we had finally cleared up the water after, you know, a couple of days. And 
um, we were literally in the water. Our pre-dive checks are just wrapping up when we're having another inflow. And I had that, that moment of it's either go or no go, but it's got to go like this second, this is our launch window. (laughs) And, uh, and I had to decide to go. And I think that that decision as well as the decision to know when to abort instantaneously are incredibly important. The abort rule is even more important. It's really the ultimate rule of survivors. Like when you're in the cave, like I might've gone a hundred feet into that cave and then changed my mind and um, been willing to abort. And I think that that's, that's really important. You have to be willing to get within that hair's breadth of what you consider to be complete success and know that you must turn around because for me that can be a you know a, a life-changing or life-ending decision if i get it wrong is that a gut feeling is that something learned through time and practice like is it more rational or does it come from from the the belly or the core it's a bit of both uh Part of it's rational, like I have to have unwavering safety protocols uh, in regards to preparing and checking my equipment. So my life support equipment, I have a detailed checklist that I have to go through. And even if there's some small issue with it, I have to you know, know in my heart and tell everybody constantly that I will not dive without a gear unless it passes 100%. That's the, that is the cutoff. Um, I can't go halfway around the world, spend half a million dollars to get there and then go, oh, it's just a little problem. I'm going to go this time because if you're willing to break that rule, what other rule are you going to break next? It's like it's like it opens the door for a cascade of other poor decisions. So you have to have that line that you will not cross. And and it's it's easily enforceable through checklists individually and with your team. You know, cave diving, uh, we talked about this a little bit already, but just um, would rank probably pretty high in, in terms of people's fear lists, so things that would strike fear in somebody. Um, what's your relationship with fear like on a dive? How do you um, deal with fear if it arises mm-hmm. in the moment? Or, or is there, are you fearless in those moments? I am not fearless. And I want to dive with people that are also afraid <laughs> because it means that we care about risk. Because literally, I mean, think about it. You're going into an overhead environment in a, like a natural cave system. You might go miles into the planet. So if something goes wrong at that maximum penetration, like if the visibility is suddenly obliterated, if all your lights fail, if you have a failure of your, your breathing apparatus, if there's like a cave-in, if you're lost, like any of those things. You have to be able to self-rescue or do a buddy rescue from that place. So if you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) So I'm scared all the time. But before the dive, I go through all those scenarios of what could go wrong and, and rehearse them in my mind so that when I go underwater, I can say, I got this. You know, I am capable of self-rescue. I'm capable of buddy rescue. But if something happens underwater and something startles me, naturally, you know, my heart rate will race, my respiration rate will go up. And now I'm using resources uh, at a rate uh, that's not conducive to survival. So I literally have to tell myself, emotions, you will not serve me well right now. Move aside. 
I have to make pragmatic, small steps towards success if I want to get out of here alive. And um, afterwards, I can deal with the emotions. But in the moment, I have to be 100% pragmatic, left brain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about uh, another expedition of yours. 2001, you go to Antarctica to track down an iceberg. Uh, what drew you there? And could you tell the story of this expedition? Well, originally, I wanted to go to Antarctica to sort of follow in Shackleton's footsteps and retrace his his journey from New Zealand to the Ross Ice Shelf. And then, <laughs> as I'm researching this project, the largest iceberg in recorded history calves away from the Ross Ice Shelf. And it's the largest moving on object on our planet. It's the size of Jamaica. And I watched the cracks develop on a satellite photo. And I went, oh, my God, this is just like karst limestone where you get cracks that are then sort of exploited by by water in the case of antarctica it's meltwater and i thought there must be caves inside the ice if these cracks and crevices are developing it must be just like normal cave creation and so my colleague and i pitched to national geographic that we would go down and intercept this incredible piece of ice and be the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg um so <laughs> They said yes, even though actually it was a hypothesis. Uh, I guess we were pretty convincing in our pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that go? Well, uh, it was one of the most extraordinary expeditions of my life. I mean, we, we spent 60 days down in the Ross Sea. Uh, and did indeed find caves inside of icebergs and explored these environments and documented them for the first time for the magazine and for a film. But it was also, once again, one of these environments that because nobody had ever explored it, we had no idea what we were going to face in terms of dangers. So I came home from that project pretty much sounding like a, a mad woman, like when I was telling people what we did and what happened. <laughs> but it really was taken you know thoughtfully day by day you know we had safety meetings every morning what can we do to make this safer how can we how can we achieve this <laughs> but we experienced you know breaking ice calving closing the door of a cave that we'd just gone inside of we experienced horrendous currents that swept me through an iceberg and then eventually even exploded this entire piece of ice that i had just come out of um so pretty dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> what was the water temperature like as you're there? Or are you, or is it not feel, even feeling it because of dry suits and because of? Oh, you feel it. <laughs> <laughs> it's minus 1.8 Celsius or 28 degrees Fahrenheit for uh, imperial folks. Uh, it's, you know, like jumping into a Slurpee. Your, <laughs> your facial skin is directly exposed to the water and the ice. And, and the ice is like the water's slushy on the surface because one tenth of a degree colder and it would be frozen solid. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned this iceberg exploding just after you've exited it. Does that, does that deter you from, from carrying on? Is that the, is there more to go in that expedition after that? Are you getting back in the water or does that take some time to, to kind of well, sit and pause for a moment? I was preparing to get back in the water when that happened. Like we literally, like we were eating dinner, we just prepared our equipment and somebody up on deck who was watching for the current to slow down suddenly screamed out. And we all ran up on deck to see this iceberg just 
deconstructing <laughs> before our eyes, it threw up a massive wave, um, dislodging our boat from its anchorage. And um, it was it was terrifying, <laughs> really. But I remember turning to the like the expedition um, scientific lead, and I said it's time for us to go home. <laughs> so despite the fact that I wanted to dive again, it's, it was clear to me that this was the end of the Antarctic summer and the ice was already freezing north a couple miles a day. So we needed to get out of there. You talked a little bit about this earlier, but just how uh, you've seen different technological changes, how you've been able to watch technology progress uh, throughout your career, new um capabilities emerge in terms of what we're able to do underwater, you know, where the ability to dive deeper is opened up by mixing gases together, uh, how mapping the underwater environment is made uh, easier by radar and, and 3D mapping. Um, could you just talk about the progress you've seen and what was possible and what's become possible uh, throughout your mm -hmm. career? Yeah, when I started diving, I was just wearing a, a single tank on my back, inhaling air, you know, the same air that we breathe in, in this room, and exhaling and making bubbles. Well, today I'm wearing a rebreather uh, that is really the same thing that an astronaut wears to do a spacewalk, except that I can also mix in exotic gases like helium to go deeper than we've you know, been able to go before safely. So, so that I can optimize my breathing mix at every point during my dive for, you know, missions that I've done as long as 22 hours. Um, but other technologies really change things too, like uh, mapping devices, you know, rather than using a compass and a piece of string to map a cave, we're using uh, these fully autonomous robotic mappers that can explore without me. They're artificially intelligent. Um, these devices that will eventually go to Jupiter's moon Europa and map the liquid ocean beneath the frozen surface. So that sort of technology. But we're also uh, doing new imaging technology so that we no longer have to remove very precious artifacts from you know, an underwater cave. Like for instance, a Mayan skull. Uh, things that we used to be tasked to remove for museums or researchers, we can now image in place using um, just a incredibly detailed augmented reality software that uh, allows us to share this data with uh, scientists around the world, either, either data that they can see on their computer or data that they can look at as a hologram through a set of uh, unique glasses. Uh, so there's so much progress that's been made and, and a lot farther to go yet, I think. What's the biggest thing that the world below water has taught you? That's maybe a broad question, but if you could think of maybe uh, one thing. Oh, no, it's easy. It's just the interconnectedness of everything. I, you know, I go to the Arctic every summer to try and um, document the things that I'm seeing associated with climate change just to show people that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Um, and it, it's just interconnectedness globally that, that I've really got a, a up close and personal look at through diving. You know, on that note, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is how everything that we do on the surface of our earth will be returned to us to drink. I think that that image really lodged in the mind. Um, what do you see when you're underwater, when you're in the Arctic, or, or what do you wish more people 
could see if they could only be underwater in the same places. Yeah, so much. I mean, you know, in my more than 30 year career, I shouldn't have seen so many dramatic changes in uh, on our planet in such a short career. And I know that people have been diving longer than me go, oh my God, if you saw 50 years ago, you'd be amazed. So I've seen everything from, you know, uh, springs in Florida that local farmers call go away holes where they've just shoveled the refuse of, of society into these holes that are leading directly to their drinking water into their groundwater. So I've seen oil drums underwater leaking in a drinking water conduit. Uh, but I've also seen the color of the water change. So in Florida, that turquoise spring water is now a little bit more green as the nitrates and phosphates have, have increased from agricultural runoff, septic tanks and other human activities. Um, the algal blooms are going off the charts in Florida waterways and coastal estuaries. Uh, I've seen the coral reefs, like in the Cayman Islands, where I first, you know, started my professional diving career. I've seen them go from abundant to, you know, sparse for fish. I've seen the coral bleaching. I've seen the algae um, move into the reef. Uh, so those colorful walls are brown, hairy algae <laughs> places now. Um, it's, it's a lot. Our world is changing fast. Hmm. What are you working on today? What's, what's next for you in terms of what there is to explore, what, what there is to do? Well, the COVID year has, you know, kept me home, um, which in some ways is an incredible blessing. But, you know, a lot of my my projects and expeditions that would have had me traveling for seven months out of the year just kind of disappeared until until the world gets back to normalcy. But um, but I've continued working on projects here. So I'm very close to Canada's longest underwater cave system. And I've found um, some remarkable endangered species that are incredibly important to document and understand because they're critical for the health of the Ottawa River and Great Lakes watershed. Uh, so it's been really nice to be home and nice to contribute to, you know, scientific work here. Uh, I think I'll be traveling less for the rest of my life. You know, one as a pledge to, um, you know, really, you know, live true to uh, what I feel are important climate change personal actions. But you know, too, there's there's so much to do here. I I should be doing it. <laughs> I should be doing it in my own backyard. I thought a good way for us to end would be to ask about one more quote. I really enjoyed this phrase that you use, uh, which is dancing in the joy of uncertainty. Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that phrase uh, and how it applies in your life? Yeah, a lot of people find change frightening. Uh, and I, I don't. I don't find change or failure frightening uh, because they both offer opportunities for learning and doing things better. Uh, I'm always that person that's looking for the next learning curve. And so that involves change. It involves like moving from the top of a totem pole, <laughs> you know, down to the base level again to, to learn from people that know more and to search for new mentors. Uh, and to me, that's refreshing and exciting. Uh, you know, I hope that everybody that's had their life changed dramatically in this past year has, has also found some joy in change and uncertainty and maybe found some new skill or a new love for 
uh, new interests that they can they can take forward, and maybe they'll be a little less afraid of change in the future. Jill, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate talking to you today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Martin. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Jill, her book, Into the Planet, is out now through Anchor Canada. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.